1: screwed up my courage. This wasn't going to be easy. Do you believe in angels, I blurted. I instantly regretted it. My question was too personal. It was none of my business. Time slowed in an instant to an horrific crawl. I was biting my tongue when Dogger replied. Yes, I do, most assuredly. They're invisible, of course, but we humans know them as thoughts. Somewhere, a corner of the universe clicked into place and the day brightened. I knew that Things hereafter were never going to be the same. Thank you, dogger, I said. I've always suspected that. And we both laughed. This is GP Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Alan Bradley, author of the Flavia DeLuce mystery series. My opening quote is from his latest, Golden Tresses of the Dead, but I've read them all. The first book, The Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie, came out in 2009. It introduced the intrepid 11-year-old protagonist Flavia De Luce and won a boatload of awards. Each of the other books in the series conveys a sense of a lost time and an English countryside still scarred by the Second World War and peopled by traumatized soldiers and their families. I love this series and look forward to a conversation with author Alan Bradley, who is speaking to us from Malta. Hi, Ellen. Thanks for joining me today.
0: Hi, and thank you for inviting me. It's uh, so much fun doing this and a struggle with the technology, but we got it to work.
1: That's right. So let's start with what was the genesis of the series and how did you decide to create a precocious 11-year-old as your protagonist.
0: Well, I don't want to tell the same story over and over again so many times. I'd, I'll try and keep, keep that part of it very short and tell you something that you haven't heard before. I had planned when I retired from the University of Saskatchewan uh, to write a sort of golden age mystery novel, something that might have existed in the 1950s. And uh, I was plugging along with my novel, and lo and behold, into it walked this girl uh, who cropped up in a scene, and I hadn't the faintest idea where she came from, who she was, what her name was, what her background was. I knew nothing about her. She just parachuted into the scene I was writing and completely took over my book. She commandeered my book. She hijacked my book. And uh, it brought me to a halt. I had to stop writing, and I realized that I had to begin listening to her to try and find out who she was and what she was doing in my book. And uh, it it became a process of discovery for me. It wasn't about creating Flavia. I didn't create Flavia. There was not any point that I ever sat down and said, oh, yes, I I will write a detective story and I will have uh, the protagonist will be a girl and she will be 11 and she will live in a big crumbling country house. I, I never, ever planned any of that at all. I was just plugging along with my own mystery when suddenly Flavia appeared. So I had to pry out of her all of this information, and it was extremely difficult. I didn't know her name. Uh, one of the toughest things uh, was to find out how old she was because she obviously wasn't telling, and she wasn't very talkative. She tended to just sit and observe what was going on. And at that point in the book, there wasn't very much going on, so Flavia wasn't saying very much. She was quite monosyllabic, and uh, it was like pulling teeth to find out. But I finally uh, came to the conclusion that she was 11. and. that that was quite a process figuring out that she was 11 because i she never actually said at that point what her age was but i knew that she was fiercely idealistic i knew that she had a fierce sense of justice that she knew what was right and what was wrong as 11 year olds do Uh, She was wildly enthusiastic about uh, certain things like chemistry. She had a burning enthusiasm. She was single-minded. All of this pointed to someone of 11 years old because we don't see all of these things in older people. She had focus. She had energy. She had stamina. She had intensity and uh, it, it was that that made me realize that she was 11. And then I think at one point she actually did say that she was. And I was quite proud of myself for having detected from, from her manner of speaking and uh, her whole being that, that she was 11. Because all I knew was that she was a girl sitting on a camp stool who had suddenly materialized bodily in in the middle of my book, and made me go back to the beginning and start all over again so that Flavia Deleuze could tell her story. She wasn't interested in Alan Bradley's story. She wanted to tell her story. So my instructions really were, shut up and listen. And here I am, more than 10 years later, still listening. So that's the genesis of Flavia in a nutshell.
1: So she's, uh, it's 1950. We're Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie, is your first book. And we're in the English village of Bishop's Lacey. I understand you were probably about that age around that time. Did you glean anything from your own childhood?
0: I I think I was. I I think a a lot of Flavia's enthusiasm and idealism. were probably tapped into my own interests at that age. I know that 11 was very special when you begin to discover the world around you and uh, physics and wonderful things, you know. What kid in those days didn't read Ripley's Believe It or Not? You're sitting up in bed at night and just agog at all the wonders of the world. And uh, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a household where books were treasured and uh, books were available on uh, almost anything that you would want. Uh, We didn't have a lot of books in our home, but we had encyclopedias and we had a library library. And uh, libraries and encyclopedias have always been of extreme importance to me. I collect them now. I have a weakness for old reference books. I have Whitaker's Almanac for 1948 and 49 and 50. And uh, uh, I have various encyclopedias and uh, whatnot. Uh, you know, if if 1950 ever comes back again, I've got it made. You're ready. I'm ready for it. Um, So I I think that was based on my own uh, childhood. I wasn't interested in chemistry. In fact, I didn't know anything about chemistry as a child. Uh, I I was once uh, owned, I, I owned a chemistry set briefly that I traded something for with a friend and it wound up going in the garbage because it just made stinks and messes and it wasn't terribly interesting. My own interest was in playing with light. I was always fascinated with light and the properties of light and what you could do to light with colored glass and mirrors and prisms. And uh, as a kid, I spent hours sitting on the curb uh, playing with bits of colored glass and sunlight and uh, mirrors and uh, just figuring out how color was generated by prisms and what you could do by combining them and adding them and subtracting them so light to me has always been very mystical uh, almost at the root of everything and uh, I think that shows in the book in Flavia it comes out in an interest in chemistry which is really the same thing it It's just looking at it uh through a different prism, if you will, but uh Flavia's enthusiasm i think was was generated by my recollections of of being so wonderfully entranced all the time by what you could do with light, and that went on through my life it it continued and it still continues. Now, uh, when when I was a kid, my fondest hope was to be a projectionist in a movie theater because, uh, you know, you were in command of these gigantic projectors that had carbon arc producing intense uh, thousands of watts of light that were coming through lenses and reflectors and going onto the screen with uh, all, all the wonderful, you know, technicolor, widescreen, maximum use of light. And uh, the uh, people in school that were counselors at the time were very dismissive of this uh, dream of mine. They, they kind of made jokes about it, and uh, uh, they didn't make me a popular person in school. When I did begin to work, I started in radio broadcasting uh, and I went fairly quickly into television. And of course, in television, you get to play with very expensive cameras, which which have wonderful prisms and beam splitting and uh, uh, incredibly expensive uh, light splitting prisms and everything inside them, which I loved. And uh, I spent 35 years uh, as a television broadcast engineer, and I was allowed to play with glass and light and prisms, and I got paid for it, and it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, Somewhere in the middle of that time, it it was kind of uh, aggravating that I had never got to be a theater projectionist, and uh, in my spare time, I actually uh, did become a theater projectionist And in those days, that was no trivial matter. You had to uh, become an apprentice, and you had to start at the beginning by sweeping the floor in the projection booth. And uh, you had to put in a 1,000 hours of theater projection without pay, and you weren't allowed to miss a day. And uh, the, the, the restrictions were extremely tight in those days, And uh, even though I was the chief engineer of a TV broadcasting station, when I finished at night, I had to go put on my apprentice's hat and I had to go out to the drive-in movie theater and sweep the floors and be just a humble assistant. But my goodness, did I get to play with with some wonderful projectors and at at a drive-in theater, they're super spotlight intense. Uh, so the light and the heat and the mirrors and the prisms are at their maximum in a, in a drive-in theater. Uh, so th- those were very, very happy days. So getting back to Flavia, I, I think her intensity and love of uh, a form of physics comes from my own experiences.
1: Uh, so what were you teaching at the University of Saskatchewan when you retired?
0: Uh, Well, my job wasn't teaching. My job was designing and building uh, television broadcast studios. I I was the guy that did all the paperwork and designed all of the cabling that went under the floor and all of the equipment that was purchased, like cameras and video recorders and editing equipment, and then you would buy it, and then you would install it, and then you would teach people how to use it, and then you would uh, eventually wind up just fixing it when it broke. And although I did that, I also was asked over quite a number of years to teach courses at the university, and I taught writing. I taught uh, television script writing and uh, television production mostly um, in uh, one one of the uh, departments at the university. So I I did have an opportunity to teach, but that was my evening um, occupation during the di- during the daytime, I was just one of the guys behind the scenes in a number of big TV studios.
1: Still, you're somewhat of a Renaissance man. Um, in the first book, we already mentioned the second. Uh, there's a murder that sets everything off. The second one, the weed that strings the hangman's back, A puppeteer is murdered, and in the third book, a red herring without mustard. A soothsayer who may or may not have abducted a child is found murdered. Aside from people being murdered, what would you say is the common thread between all the books in the series?
0: I I think I knew fairly early in the series that I wanted to uh, have each book feature some aspect of English life that didn't exist anymore. And uh, as as a child, I, I didn't mention that I was brought up in a very uh, British expat home where uh, my mother and my grandparents uh, had all been born in England and everything in their homes was English. They had English magazines, English books. Uh, they went to see English movies at the theater and so forth. And so it was natural that I would read books about England, and uh, when I did, I would go to the library and I would bring home uh, an armload of books, maybe six or eight books, Uh, anything about England I could get my hands on. And I didn't care what it was, as long as it was about England. So it could be about English poets, it could be English geology, it could be uh, English villages, it could be English furniture, it could be English village customs. Uh, And I just devoured that, that kind of information so that I was sort of bubbling over with it when I... Came to write the Flavia books, and and um, Bishop's Lacey uh, as a village, I think, draws on a lot of those things that I read. In fact, I hadn't been in England <laughs> at all until after *The Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie* won the Debut Dagger Award, and. Uh, I, I did uh, get to go to England and see some of those places. But now, 10 years later, I've, I've been been to England many times and uh, have become firsthand familiar with, with a lot of the things that I loved rather than just reading about them in books.
1: Buckshaw, the once grand mansion where the Deleuze family lives, is it based on a specific place?
0: No, no, not really. It's just... Uh, it was indicative, I think, of, of the general uh, tone of upper to middle class life in the 50s, that the day was finished when people could own houses like that and keep them up and they were crumbling. Uh, they had leaky water faucets and they were cold and uh, they, they were not necessarily pleasant places to be. They were very romantic, but that was about it.
1: Tell us about Flavia's parents and sisters.
0: Well, Flavia's uh, father in the first book, Colonel Deleuze, is a retired Army man, and uh, he has been scarred in so many ways. He has lost his wife, Flavia's mother, uh, who was uh, a very young and a very vivacious and a very intelligent woman, and he's lost her under tragic circumstances. Uh, He also has a horrendous uh, history in the military. He has experienced things that most people couldn't imagine. And he's been left with this crumbling country house and three daughters. And in the face of that, he has retreated into his stamp collections. And his whole world uh, has become really nothing more than these pretty little bits of colored paper, and he spends most of his time, uh, to the detriment of his children, uh, fiddling and arranging his stamps. Uh, Flavia's mother, as I say, does not appear in any of the books except through Flavia, and uh, Flavia often has intimations when, when she realizes that she's behaving in a certain way that this must be what my mother was like, and she's never known her. So it, it's interesting to see Flavia discover uh, her mother through her own reactions to the world. She also has two sisters, uh, Daphne, who's called Daffy, and uh, Ophelia, who is called Philly. And uh, feely is uh, about 17 in the first book, and Daffy is about 14. So they're both older than Flavia. Uh, the the oldest, uh, Feely, is obsessed with her own image in the mirror, and spends most of her days and nights examining her complexion, uh, and is interested in nothing except music. She's she's a, a very 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 accomplished. Uh, pianist and uh, she performs quite often in the village and and plays a lot of music at home and uh, Daffy has also retreated into books and I think you can see that each each one of the daughters has retreated into their own world. Even though they live in the same house, they live in different universes. Flavia into chemistry, Daffy into books, and uh, Feely into music, and her own reflection in the mirror.
1: The superstitions that you allude to, as an example, in The Golden Tresses of the Dead, where do you come up with those kind of things?
0: I think those are all real um instances from English folklore. There's a lot of material on on village beliefs and uh, folk customs and so on. And uh, Mrs. Mullet, the cook in the books, is a great fount of knowledge when it comes to superstitious, because she is superstitious and she knows a lot of the folklore. Uh, She also believes a lot, uh, so she's a, a bit of a Uh, Another worldly character in one way, but in another way, she's extremely practical about life. And Flavia learns a tremendous amount by talking to Mrs. Mullet and uh, also by snooping on her. So... uh, she, she is one of one of the most important characters in the household is Mrs. Mullet. The other one, of course, is Dogger, who is uh, father's uh, former butler, sometime gardener, sometime handyman, and former army companion, uh, who has a very, very special place in Flavia's life.
1: His role plays over the course of the books. I found him fascinating. Right now, in the, towards the end, he's Flavia's sleuthing partner.
0: Yes, yes, he is. Uh, Dogger has a somewhat mysterious background. He, he Flavia knows that uh, he has been in the army at some point, that he was a prisoner of war with her father at one point. Uh, but she doesn't know a lot about the rest of his life. And Dogger doesn't dwell on his former life for two reasons. One of them is that he's very reticent. Uh, he doesn't talk about himself. And the other is that he suffers uh, occasionally from what they now call PTSD, and which in those days they called shell shock. And uh, he's not really in touch with the uh, a lot of his former life, or at least not all of the time. So he says very little about it, but we get clues throughout the books about the things that Dogger knows about. And uh, he has some of the most remarkable uh, accomplishments and uh, wonderful, just wonderful things that it turns out he's quite familiar with them. Whether it's uh, Uh, brain surgery or whether it's lockpicking, Dogger seems to have been there and done that.
1: He's truly a wonderful character. Can you talk a little bit about your process of beginning, middle and beginnings and finishing another book?
0: I usually um, decide on what the theme is going to be, of the book I don't know who the characters are but I I know which uh, particular aspect of British life I want to focus on uh, the last book The Golden Tresses of the Dead for example uh, had uh, quite a bit to do with the London Necropolis Railway which was a railway for dead people uh, which actually operated in London during the Victorian era and right up until during World War II And it always intrigued me that there was a railway for dead people and a very, very efficient one, extremely efficient. It was always on time, never late. It always got the dead customer where they were going and always got the mourners back home again in time for tea. So I would start with an idea like that. And then apart from that, the writing process really is listening uh, I need to sit down comfortably at the keyboard and shut off Alan Bradley's brain, stop thinking about the rain outside, and uh, stop thinking about uh, having to go shopping later, but just tune into what Flavia is saying and listen to her and write down what she says without being critical of it. When I do that, Flavia begins talking and the characters appear by magic. They they just come as they're required. I don't know where they come from. They come complete with their names. I don't have to sit around and dream up names or think up histories when these characters walk onto the page or leap out of the inkwell, as some people have said. They seem to have... Their complete history, uh, their character, their looks, their education uh, is contained in them. And I just write it down. And uh, I follow Flavia. The mystery will take place. Flavia seems to know how to solve it. I don't worry about those things. I'm not making vast charts about who was where when Colonel so-and-so was murdered in the library or something. like. I don't do that. I don't chart. I don't make notes. I don't plot. I, I listen to Flavia.
1: And Flavia comes up with such amazing ideas. Uh, this was my favorite one of the last book. She says she figures out that to win someone, quote, you find their greatest charity, which will then be their greatest weakness. <laughs> Where's that come from?
0: That comes from Flavia. That's Flavia's uh, Flavia's opinion. I I don't remember ever thinking that myself. Uh, I don't know that I would think that, or even that I'm capable of thinking that, but that that is something that came direct from Flavia's soul, so I have to take it as uh, sacred when she says things like that, that it's coming from some source that is beyond me, certainly, uh perhaps perhaps beyond Flavia, I, I don't really know, but I I do know that it's that it's sacred and uh, you have to honor that in writing. You have to be very, very careful not to uh, do anything that would dishonor that kind of material when it's entrusted to you.
1: So what are you working on now?
0: I'm actually taking a well-earned sabbatical right now. I have other, other things that I'm very interested in, in writing. I, I hope to achieve other things besides the Flavia books. And uh, so I do a lot of reading and uh, studying and note-taking and uh, do interesting things. I go interesting places. I talk to interesting people. And uh, all of it somewhere will find its place in one book or another, which I have no idea at the moment. I just go along and enjoy the ride.
1: Are there lots of interesting people there on the Isle of Man?
0: Yes, yes, there are. The Isle of Man has a fabulous history. There there are, uh, it, it goes back, uh, it's an ancient, goes back to the Stone Age. and. Uh, there are wonderful castles here, and uh, people who were imprisoned in them in the Middle Ages. And uh, King Arthur, the King Arthur legends have uh, certain followers in the Isle of Man. Uh, there are people who claim that the Holy Grail is here, and who knows, they may be right but uh you can just uh if you've lived somewhere else you can go around the isle of man with your jaw hanging open in awe of the absolutely gorgeous scenery
1: mm. thank you so much alan bradley for talking to me today it was just a pleasure
0: well thank you for inviting me i'm glad you thought of uh, asking me and it's been great fun talking about it, and uh, thanks for the great questions. You've really pried a lot of information out of me that I've never told anybody before.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for joining me. Again, this is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Alan Bradley, author of the Flavia De Luce Mystery Series. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash NBN forward slash join.